The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustan Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club. We are back. Vivian Doudreau, Joseph Pierce, myself, to discuss G.K. Chesterton's collected essays uh, in defense of sanity. I am not sure where we left off. Did we cover the furrow and the meaning of dreams, or do we... I, I don't think we got to the meaning of dreams. I think that's where we're reconvening. Okay, so yes. let's reconvene there. I had nothing to say about that. Oh, except for the fact that it says lunacy in letters, 1958. I mean, did he write this after he died, or what? What does that mean? No, the thing with Chesterton, he wrote so much that uh, they keep discovering. Dale Alquist and company are still discovering new essays today. So okay. previously uncollected essays were collected in posthumous editions of, of essays. Basically. Okay. Yeah, all I have on that basically is a great big letters that this essay is as nonsensical as dreams themselves. So I, I, obviously I'm not a fan of this particular essay, and I didn't. I'm not responsible for selecting it. So I, I you know, I. I have nothing to say on it beside that. It probably means, of course, that I misunderstood it, but there you go. Well, I would only like to say that um, dreams are another one of those human experiences that can be a doorway for people asking about what it means to be human. You know, the subconscious, the, the, the topsy-turviness of it all. What And he does say that... Um, on page 118, he says, For the truth is that there will always be religion so long as certain primeval facts of life remain inexplicable and therefore religious. Such things as birth and death and dreams are at once so impenetrable and so provocative that to ask men to put them on one side and have no hopes or theories about them is like asking them not to look at a comet or not to look out the answer of a riddle. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, and I, I just want to add. I, oh, sorry, no, please. I was please. just going to add that you know sometimes the the science people, whoever they are, will say, "Oh, so as soon as we explain everything, we won't need religion anymore. Science will replace religion, or whatever." But Chesterton's point is that these things will remain inexplicable, however long we study them. Yeah, in other they are words, just science, beyond yeah. the grasp of human comprehension. Yeah, science will not ever be able to explain everything. But my, my problem with, with his rationale in this, if I've understood it correctly, is that dreams ultimately are irrational. Um, and, uh, and therefore, to sort of build some, some proof of anything on something which is fundamentally irrational strikes me as, as you know, that's what Freud did. Uh, uh, basically erroneously with respect to reality. And so I think Chesterton sort of moving dangerously in that direction. I mean, I, I, he's not a Freudian, but I mean, what I, I just didn't get it. I didn't get what you're trying to prove on the basis of dreams, which, I mean, you know. 
Well, there are dreams though in the Bible. Yes, but that but that's that's divine that's divine supernatural intervention to someone's sleep. That's not what what we have as dreams ninety nine point nine times out of a hundred, and 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 that's irrational. The naught point naught naught one when 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 God decides to actually send us a message in a dream is is uh, is a whole different issue. Well, but how do you know it's uh, irrational and not a message? Well, I, I suppose you have to rely on uh, the, the way I would do that. Is quite obvious to me that if I have dreams, it's basically the unraveling of nonsense in, in 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 my subconscious, and it's quite clearly not rational. Very occasionally, I'll give you an example. Actually, to, 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 I, one one of the the few points. Wait, 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 what about the nonsense when you're conscious? We hear a lot. <laughs> well, that's just, that's that, that's even that, that that's that's excusable. Um, <laughs> that's <laughs> when he's sleepwalking. <laughs> One of the very few poems I've written that I think have any merit, most of it was received in a dream. So, I mean, so I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that there's not things that happen that transcend, that are ultimately sublime, and who knows where that comes from. That wasn't my subconscious, I'm sure. Um, it was a gift. But that's very rare, and nine time, 99 times out of 100, I don't take my dream seriously. Well, there was a man once who kept having this dream, which he thought was brilliant, but he couldn't, could not remember it when he woke up. And so uh, he finally put a notepad down by his bed, and he had the dream. He woke up, and he wrote it down. And the morning he looked at it, he said, Oh, hogamous, hygamous, men are polygamous, hygamous, hogamous, women monogamous. Okay. That was just a bit too much for me. It's far too subtle. You don't have to say that slowly uh, at some other time for me to even get that. I've got, I've got polygamous and monogamous, but... Um, Okay. I, I missed the rest. Now, Joseph, <laughs> do you have on your screen there that letter we got or that that email we got from the woman who said we're going too fast? Not on my screen, but I replied to her. Okay, good. Good. But anyway. Well, there, you know, dreams show up in Cardinal Pell's prison diary. Uh, some of the people who write him letters. If, 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 if we want literary connection, the nun's priest tale, a large part of the nun's priest tale, the Canterbury Tales, is actually Chaucer's defense of the fact that dreams can be the transmission, transmitters of truth. Um, so I'm not denying that. I just think it's, un, it's, it's rare. And to actually assuming that dreams normally do that is, is wrong. Because normally okay. they well, Fair enough. Th this person wrote us complaining that we're trying to go through these books too fast. And she said, I know you're trying to sell books, but we'd like to pause on these and reflect on them more. Uh, well, she's got what she wanted on this book. Uh, but I think part of the reason, at least, is this. These are essays. And each essay is kind of like a condensed uh, orange juice can, you know, where you, do, you, can't, you can't eat the thing all at once. You've got to go and dilute it a little bit. So and I think in defense of the Form Book Club and Ignatius Press, uh, you know, it's, if we were really interested in selling books, we wouldn't be spending 10 weeks on one book. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Seems to be likely in this case. Uh, oh, so the next chapter is on being moved, which I marked at the top as from the banal to the sublime. I thought it was beautiful. And here again, Chesterton, on page 123, middle of the page, you know, he's moving from one house to another, and so the movers are coming and taking things away. And uh, he's finally left there sitting on a chair, writing on his knee. But he says, uh, 
I feel strangely grateful to the noble wooden quadruped. What a nice expression to describe a chair, right? On which I sit. Who am I that the children of men should have shaped and carved for me four extra wooden legs besides the two that were given me by the gods? But it's the point of all deprivation that it sharpens the idea of value. Perhaps that is, after all, the reason of the riddle of death. In a better world, perhaps we may permanently possess and permanently be astonished at possession. In some strange estate beyond the stars, we may manage at once to have and to enjoy. But in this world, there is some sickness at the root of psychology. We have to be reminded of the thing is ours by its power of disappearance. Abscess makes the heart go fonder or... Yeah. If suddenly the lights go off, you appreciate electric lights. You also appreciate the stars, which you haven't seen for a while. Uh, yeah, in, the, in, in the midst of that, Father, you know, that long passage, all of which is absolutely sublime uh, and beautiful, uh, you also have what is one of those great Chesterton aphorisms that, that, that change your life. Um, you know, that for it is the point of all deprivation that it sharpens the idea of value. And perhaps this is, after all, the reason of the riddle of death. So, so in an essay which he's talking about moving house, right? Well, you said the banal, right? Uh, moving house, he he hits us with an aphorism which which solves the, the riddle of death. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just the man's astonishing. <laughs> yes. Ah, uh, before we go, anything before we go to the Pickwick Papers? Nope. Not for me. On one twenty-seven, six lines down or so. Talking about Genesis, says, whatever be the meaning of the passage in which, in the actual primeval poem, that's Genesis, there is a very real metaphysical meaning in the idea that light existed before the sun and stars. It's not barbaric, it's very platonic. The idea existed before any of the machinery which may manifest the idea. However, that's metaphysical. Physically, it is true that light existed before the stars. At the Big Bang, you know, microseconds after the Big Bang, all we had was photons, uh, you know, light. So the Big Bang was an explosion that, that was light, and then it condensed into the stars, the sun and the moon, and so on. Uh, anyway, I just want to make that... I, 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 I highlighted that the same passage, but I didn't get as profound as you because my knowledge of the... Physical sciences is, is is minuscule compared to yours, but I just thought that you know on the purely metaphysical level, he points out an important truth there. But the fact it's also true on the literal level deepens the uh, the point. Yeah. Well, and then he moves on to this very interesting idea that um, the difference between construction and creation is exactly this: that a thing constructed can only be loved after it is constructed, but a thing created is loved before it exists. And now you think of God, the creator, loving us into existence. He loves us even before he makes us. I mean, this, I, I, I was very moved by some where, of this Where here. is that, Vivian? In the it middle of 127. Okay. On the same page, yeah. Okay. I mistake. And then he, you know, that he transcribes this, this attribute onto the artist, in this case, the writer, in this case, Charles Dickens, you know, that he loves these, uh, works of his and these characters of his before he even puts them down on a page. Yes, and on 129, on a similar topic, 
two lines down, he says, but before he wrote a single real story, he had a kind of vision. It was a vision of the Dickens world, a maze of white roads, a map of fantastic towns, thundering coaches, clamorous marketplaces, uproarious inns, strange and swaggering figures. That vision was Pickwick. Well, does that remind you at all of J.R. Tolkien? I mean, he has his yes. vision of a world. He creates a map. He has a creation story before he writes his, his story. And even, I remember uh, when Chess, uh, C.S. Lewis was talking about one of his two favorite books, which was Paralandra, uh, he said, it began, people said I wrote that for some purpose. No, I, I had this idea of a floating island, and then I wrote a story about it. Yeah. I had a hold of nine you because he had no idea of talking animals. But here, here's one to me. This is, this is critical for understanding what Chesterton writes. Page 130, two lines down. The larger the man's mind, the wider his scope of vision. The more likely it will be that anything suggested to him will seem significant and promising. The more he has a grasp of everything, the more ready he will be to write about anything. It is very hard, if that is a question, to throw a brick at a man and ask him to write an epic. But the more he is a man, the more able he will be to write about the brick. It is very unjust, if that is all, to point to a hoarding of Coleman, that hoarding means an advertisement, billboard, of Coleman's mustard, that's a famous mustard, which we still have, by the way, it's quite good, and demand a flood of philosophical eloquence. But the greater the man is, the more likely he will be to give it to you. So now, I mean, he's got to be self-aware enough to know he's writing about himself, no? I think so. Well, yeah, he's not writing about himself. He's expressing himself. Uh, I don't think he's thinking about himself. But, yes, that's an expression of Chesterton's own philosophy, uh, and that's the way he sees everything. But I don't think he's looking at himself when he's saying it. Well, yeah, I, I agree. The the uh, Probably the greatest Chesterton proponent in the world is Dale Alquist. Uh, and every year there's a Chesterton... Congress, Assembly, Convention, whatever you call it, that he runs in Minnesota. And I was there one year, and Dale gave a talk, which I thought was a tour de force. He, he described Chesterton uh, in his talk, and when he finished the talk, he said, every sentence in that talk was a quote from Chesterton describing some other author. <laughs> and, and and Dale, you know, it, it, genially, he got these things together. I mean, about a third of the way through, I, I could recognize, wait a second, there's something about this, this talk, this sounds too Chestertonian. But in fact, it was a talk uh, where Chesterton was in his criticism, in the, in the one sense of the word of appreciation for and analysis of other great literary writers, you know, uh, he was describing himself. Yeah, that, 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 can, can we go, though, before we move on, uh, from you mentioned from the uh, banal to the sublime. Can we go back from the sublime to the banal for a moment? Sure. Do you mind? 
Well, Coleman's mustard. I just feel I must defend Coleman's mustard uh, and also bring in a literary allusion here. It actually connects to what we were talking about before the program began, um, Dorothy L. Sayers. First of all, Coleman's mustard uh, traditionally before globalism and uh, up until about uh, 15 years ago was made in Norwich, which is the city in England in which I lived before I moved to the States. Um, the, sec- the, uh, the second largest city in England during the medieval times, close to uh, the Shrine Valley of Walsingham. That's where the Coleman's mustard comes from, until globalism made it somewhere else. Uh, but but also, we were ta- I was Vivian and I were talking before the program began about advertising uh, and how advertising executives and what have you. You know, Dorothy L. Sayers began her working life writing advertising copy about Coleman's mustard. <laughs> really? There we are. Yes. <laughs> Well, that's good. I, we, I still, I had some yesterday. It's, 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 it's still in a powder. You have to mix it's it up with, with water yeah. or something. We'll return to the Form Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, Or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Bezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce. Now, on page one, by the way, I, after reading this essay, I went back and sure enough, I, I knew I had read the Pickwick Papers, you know, not in several translations, just the one thing. Uh, but uh, 
I went back and my, I started rereading it because Chesterton made me want to reread it, you know. Uh, so on 132, at the top, he talks about Sam Weller. In the middle of the page, he says, Sam Weller introduces the English people. And I, I wondered, Joseph, do you think that there's, that there's any connection with Tolkien choosing the name Sam, Sam Gamgee, as sort of the, the ordinary person? That's an extremely interesting um, supposition. I honestly don't know the answer. I've got a book here that I'm, I've, I've I'm promised to review for the Chesterton Review. Okay. Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages by Holly Ordway, who's actually a very, very good scholar from Houston Baptist University, Catholic convert um, from atheism. But what she proves here is that Tolkien was not just a medievalist, that he was actually very steeped in modern reading. So perhaps the answer to your question is found somewhere in this book. And if I discover it, I will let you know. But All I can't right. give it to you now. Any other comments on Pickwick Papers? I've kind of dominated the commentary here, so I definitely want to leave space, give well, you space. Well, I have something on the, on the uh, last page. Joseph, do you have anything before that? Anything else on this essay at all, Vivian? The the um, when he talks about the great weakness of Dickens, um, you know, some people do say of Dickens that he's sentimental, that he's um, anyway. And to hear how Chesterton describes what he thinks Dickens's weakness is on page one thirty five, as a great writer, that about, he did. Vivian? Would you mind telling us where it is so we? The middle of 135. Halfway down. Okay, thank you. It is the one great weakness of Dickens as a great writer that he did try to make that sudden sadness, that abrupt pity, which we call pathos, a thing quite obvious, infectious, public, as as if it were journalism or the measles. And I, I I would like to know those of you who have read Dickens also a great deal. I've read a great deal of Dickens. I have not read the Pickwick Papers, by the way. I have an illustrated version on the shelf I've been meaning to get to with the original illustrations because it was serialized with, with illustrations. But I, I, I think Dick, uh, I think Chesterton is, is, is putting his finger on something here that there is something of trying to make pathos too expansive he goes on and on about how expansive humor is before this he's talking about the expansiveness of humor and how characteristic this is of the english and so on and he says that dickens has made this mistake of trying to do the same thing with with um pathos uh but he didn't do it in pickwood it's something he does later what do you do do you have any comment on this observation joseph or father well my initial response is that I'm not sure it's a weakness. Uh, you know, pathos, we, 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 we do need to know that we're living in a veil of tears uh, in a land of exile and that we are, we, are, we are born to greatness, made in the image of God, and all of us fall miserably, repeatedly. There is, there is something pathetic about that. And I, and, I, and I think that knowing the pathetic nature of, 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 of human nature should really resonate in, in all great art. So I'm not sure that I agree on the basis of, of this discussion that I agree with Chesterton as that's a weakness of, of Dickens. He does go on to say, though, that if that is a weakness, it's not in Pickwick Papers, which was a work of his younger 
right. writing, you know. He's saying it's a problem that comes with his later work. And, um, you know, I, I've been trying to think think it through what, what, yeah, what Chester is saying. And if I agree, I, I think there is a, I think there can be a, maybe a bit of a heavy handedness when he describes the pathetic things. But as you say, and, and maybe Chesterton is also aware that Dickens was doing this somewhat deliberately. I think at the time he was trying to raise kind of social consciousness about the plight of the poor. Um, and maybe that comes, for example, here's just one very small example in, in uh, a Christmas Carol at that time, the poor had to, they didn't have ovens. So if they were going to roast anything, they had to go to a baker, a separate, you know, uh, merchant or, or tradesman, if you will, to roast their meat. And so on Sundays, when these, when these places were often closed because of Sabbath laws and so on, what it meant was the poor could not have anything roasted to eat. In, in A Christmas Carol, the Cratchits have their Christmas turkey roasted at the baker's. And I didn't know anything about this. It almost, I almost skipped completely over it. But um, when I read more about just this thing in English society, that how uh, the middle classization of Christianity and this leaving the poor behind in terms of making laws based on a kind of pietistic sort of thing, Dickens was strongly opposed to this, like you're leaving the poor behind. And if Christ wasn't for the poor, who was he for? Right. Well, for me, that was educational. And I was grateful that it was there. But for some people who saw him as more of a social reformer than he ought to have been or whatever, I could see that maybe. I don't know. I'm blathering now, but <laughs> I guess Chesterton has a point to be made that I've seen made by others in different ways. But personally, I like being reminded of the plight of the poor the way Dickens does. I think the proof of Dickens's greatness is the fact that he was uh, always concerned with the, pl the plight of the poor, uh, that he was did have a great social conscience, and yet he didn't propagandize. If he propagandized, he would ruin his literature. The fact that his works of, of literature are so good proves that he can deal with pathos, uh, he can deal with suffering, he can deal with the failures and pride of humanity uh, and, and, and the state of the poor in a way which is not preaching, which is not propagandistic, uh, uh, it doesn't have an agenda, at least it doesn't have an agenda that's wearing on its sleeve. Um, that, that, that's the, the secret of great art. Yeah. Yep. Well, in reading Dickens, as he describes his various characters, and he describes many different kinds of characters and people, and it's kind of like uh, caricatures in a sense, uh, but I, it makes me nervous because I think as I walk down the street, is there a Dickens out there who sees me and is going to describe me as I really am, like like Dickens did these characters? Is uh, anyway? Now we come. Oh, anything else on this chapter? No, we so. have a little time left, but let's see if we can cover this one. Of the bluff of the big shops. So, what would Chesterton say about Walmart, Amazon, and Costco? He was a yuck. <laughs> uh, and I would, and I would, and I would second that proposal. 
would he do you think he'd buy something on Amazon? Not if he could help it. Yeah. Um well, I mean, as I, I was Oh, go ahead. Vivian. As I was saying, um you know, so one thing to say is that one thing that Chesterton or the English in this period did not have that in America we were working toward were an, our antitrust laws. And so the, one of the sad facts of life is that wealth and power do tend to become concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer. That's just a natural tendency in society. And so societies that care about things like justice and equity and these kinds of things ought to do something to mitigate against that tendency or to, to, to temper it in some way. And um, because he says on page 140, he's telling people, don't buy at the shop, big shops. You, sh you should boycott them um, because he sees what he sees that this concentration of wealth, putting other people out of business and so on, does lead to uh, disparities between wealth and power that aren't good for a healthy society. So he says on page 140, the first thing, this is toward the bottom, is stopping the mere stampede towards monopoly before the last traditions of property and liberty are lost. And I would say that a just society would care about that and would do things to uh, mitigate against it, not to stop it entirely, not to stop all competition or all things growing. Or, Hold but, on, but, but Vivian, to balance if, I could, it out. If, I could, if I could put a footnote in there, we, mu we mustn't have non-sequiturs. Um, you know, that, that we, you know, monopoly is not competition. So, that's, you, of course, you, that's what I just right, said. So you, not to you, stop all competition, but the point is the whole point about stopping monopoly is so you have competition. Well, p competition is the way monopolies happen. Then once they exist, there's no more competition. So, for example, take the example of Walmart coming to a small town, right? So let's say you have this small town with all these stores. You got the hardware store. You've got the, the dress boutique. You've got the whatever you've got, right? Now Walmart moves in down the road and through competition, price competition, I can sell that hammer. At, well, I can buy that hammer at Walmart for less than I can buy it at the hardware store on Main Street. I can buy that dress at Walmart for less than I can buy it in the boutique on Main Street. And so it's through competition that the larger entities wipe out the smaller entities. And then, and then once they do, now they can control the price and there's no more competition. So Idiot. you do want to build in your society ways, I believe, uh, I agree with Chesterton. Another, another, to another, fo another footnote, Vivian, that you're not buying the hammer in Walmart cheaper than you're buying it in in the uh, local hardware store because there are hidden prices you're paying um such as the destruction of your own local community such as the the destruction of political freedom such as the manipulation of elections and other words that's a social cost that's the whole point the whole point is that that, that, that the, the price is not merely a product of uh of the supply and demand curve there, there are prices we pay in other words, there are costs to transactions that are outside that equation. And unless we get ourselves out of that, uh, that, that um, the, um, empiricist way of, of looking at economics, uh, we're going nowhere. Well, uh, Joseph, it's not the, the average person 
in shopping for anything, whether it's a car or a pair of shoes or a hammer or whatever, the average person does compare prices. And that's not the only thing. You also might look at the quality. You also might look at, you know, more and more people are becoming sensitized okay. to the situation. Yeah, we, what, with, we buy all of you're our interrupting meat. me. Well, you're doing most of the talking. Well, no, we, no, no, we, wait we, a minute. Let her finish. Let her finish, Joseph. As people do become aware of other costs, so for example, as people becoming more and more aware of the cost of losing so much of our manufacturing and so on to China, now people are in fact looking, was this made in China? That was something they weren't sensitive to before, but they're sensitive to it now. Where I was just last week in the Hudson River Valley, some of those quaint small towns have prevented Walmart from moving nearby because they want to retain their, their, their main street and so on. So it, it, it's true that there are these other costs besides price, but because they're not immediately apparent, perhaps many people don't think of them until those costs have already been paid. So, you know, you could do your best to try to raise consciousness, but at the end of the day, a lot of people go to Amazon for one simple reason. They can get stuff cheaper and faster. And more conveniently, the, yeah. path, of least, the path of least resistance. Absolutely. We know where that leads. It's, it's a mixed thing in, in the sense exactly. that uh, there are values to a large family being able to go to Costco and buy stuff in bulk. They just can't get it at the local grocery store. But there's a wonderful book I'll recommend by Hilar Bella called In Defense of Property, uh, where basically, among other things, he says that we should strive for a society which has the maximum number of small businesses and the minimum number of large businesses. I mean, you can't have a mom and pop railway or airlines, you know, so, okay, so those things have to, but then you want to have stockholders so that a lot of people re, really own it. Uh, but you, you have to, you have to have some kind of laws, political, you know, restraints. Otherwise, like you say, Vivian, competition will eventually lead to monopolies. So there's got to be some, which is, which, is the, which is the absence of competition. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's it, it's, it's, it's a gray area where, where do you draw the line? And people can disagree on that. But I think we can't condemn all large, you know, uh, enterprises. Nor, doing that. No, but nor can we uh, accede to the disappearance of the small ones. I live in a neighborhood in San Francisco called the Inner Sunset uh, because San Francisco is a li very liberal place now. Maybe they, they're very strong about neighborhoods. And no uh, box store or franchise can move into this neighborhood without the neighborhood approving. And as a result, we have none of them. The one we have is Starbucks, but apart from, in Jamla Juice. But apart from that, every single store in this little neighborhood and I can walk two minutes in any direction and get everything I need for life. 40 restaurants, post office, grocery store, dentist, optometrist, hardware store. It's all there. And uh, I would rather buy from them, even if it costs a little more, than order it on Amazon or some other place and get it shipped to me. And I think, like you say, Vivian, I think there's greater sensitivity to this now and I hope it'll continue because we want to keep supporting uh, Smaller. Yeah, if, I, 
if I can, if I can end on a, a harmonious note here, because we probably, I'm happy to come back to this essay next time if we like, but we obviously we're over time here. But if we can end on a harmonious note, I agree with you. So, for instance, I wrote something years ago for my blog about Seal Beach in California, uh, which is literally just over the water from Long Beach. It's about as far north in Orange County as you can get. It's really part of uh, the, the conurbation of LA, and yet Main Street on Seal Beach, there are no uh, big. Uh, multinational corporations, the co even not even Starbucks, the coffee, there's two coffee shops that are all locally owned, local restaurants, local boutiques. Um, they don't allow any building above two stories um, on Main Street. So it looks like a village still. Um, and then here, when we moved where we are now, 15 years ago, Simpsonville, Main Street was dead. I mean, boarded up, nothing at all. Now it's alive and vibrant. And it's all small businesses because uh, this 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 understanding of localism and its importance has taken off, and I think it's very encouraging. Um, so we can go down Main Street, Simpsonville now, and there there are boutiques and coffee shops and 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 and, and uh, craft ale places, um, local restaurants, and and it's very. I mean, everyone's going there. I mean, it's a place to be, and people are walking around without cars. I mean, it's 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 like a village on my doorstep, which I didn't think I would see here. So. I think there are, there are some very good signs of practical distributism, to use Chesterton's language, uh, happening around us. And I think that that's, that's hope for the future. Vivian? Can't, can't, uh, can't uh, argue against hope. Deo <laughs> gracias. <laughs> so then we will uh, begin next week or continue next week with the 29th essay in architecture and be prepared to go up to the 38th lecture on Jane Austen. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. God bless you all. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.